Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Welcome to any new followers and subscribers we've gained over the last week or two. So if this is your first episode or you're joining us through the Dale Martin series, then welcome. It's great to have you on board. My guest today is Mandisa Thomas, the founder and president of Black Non-Believers. Black Non-Believers was founded in 2011, and it's now the largest group in the nation providing support and advocacy for atheists within the African-American community. Black Non-Believers now has local chapters in 10 U.S. cities. These organize discussion groups, regular meetings, as well as dinners together, with the idea of being to provide support, inclusion, and community for black people who do not have faith and who are often doubly marginalized in our society, being, as Mandisa puts it, a minority within a minority. So one request of the audience before I get to this interview is I've always thought it's important that we pay more attention than we do to the voices of the less privileged within the atheist community. And I do think it's notable that almost all the time the people speaking for atheism are white men. Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se, I'm a white male speaking to you about atheist atheism, but if those are the only voices you're hearing, we need to be cognizant of who's being silenced there. And so I think it's really important that we share the mic and do pay attention to important voices like Mandisa's, who's doing some incredible work. So if you share that conviction with me, please um, share this episode. Let's help get her voice out there. And, you know, that'll support the podcast, it'll support her. So please do share this episode widely, that'd be great. And if you're listening to this and you have a podcast of your own, or you're looking for people to speak potentially at a secular event or uh, conference, then I know Mandisa is open to both. So just reach out and contact her. She's, uh, like me, we're both very receptive to being reached out to. So, yeah. Help us out by sharing this episode, and if you have ideas about how we can further empower the different voices within the atheist community, please reach out to either of us. We'd love to hear from you. So, with that as preamble, it is my absolute pleasure today to present you with Mandisa Thomas. joined today by the president and founder of Black Non-Believers, Mandisa Thomas. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So just to begin with, um, Al have already introduced you before we get to this point, but mm-hmm. why don't you say a little about yourself and you've been doing this for a while now, how you got into it? Oh, sure. Oh, well, thank you very much, for Toby, for having me on the show. Um, once again, my name is Mandisa Thomas. I'm the founder and president of Black Non-Believers. The organization was founded in Atlanta in 2011, so we've been going strong now. So 
for the past seven years. And for the record, I do openly identify as an atheist. Um, I'm originally from New York City. And ironically, I wasn't formally raised religious. I wasn't formally raised Christian, Muslim, or what have you. But I was very much exposed to religion growing up. Um, I am a classically trained singer. And so my voice instructor would have me sing in various churches growing up. And I kind of paid attention to some of what was being said in the churches, and some of it kind of baffled me. Um, The the whole Trinity concept just never made sense. Um, And uh, I quickly noticed that that, that God was, uh, you know, pretty vengeful. You know, uh, it was a lot of things that Christians and believers just couldn't do which never sat well with me because in my household, you know, education was uh, very paramount. Uh, I come from a single parent home, um, very much in a working class neighborhood in New York city, uh, the projects of, to be exact. So, uh, but my mother's emphasis was on education and critical thinking. And so when I would go and um, when I would go visit these churches, uh, the, the teachings and what was being said, just, just never struck me. As, as being right. And um, so I kind of grew up uh, sort of with an outsider's view, but I also learned early on about the historical aspect of Christianity, in particular being forced during slavery on, uh, on, on the captives and on, on black people. So that also um, led to uh, my uh, my disdain for Christianity <laughs> and why so many blacks were Christian, which goes into why Black Non-Believers was founded. Um, so I can sort of see a black Christian saying something to the effect of, yes, it was the religion of the slave masters, but it also has been the religion of our emancipation. Like, all of the big figures fighting for black liberation have done so, at least nominally, under the banner of Christianity. How do you sort of make sense of that contradiction? Well, here's what we do. <laughs> um, I personally, and we, we, don't, we don't discredit the role that the church played in founding uh, colleges and universities uh, once slavery ended, as well as the role that certain religious leaders played in, in, uh, in the emancipation, so in the civil rights um, movement and the civil rights struggle when it came to overcoming racial injustice and institutionalized racism. However, uh, the doctrine itself, I think there was a lot of, um, there, there may have been that, that sort of uh, you know, not cognitive dissonance, but that that sense of, oh, well, since the church itself was helpful and religious leaders were helpful, then we're just going to, you know, we're, we're just not going to, we're going to, you know, disregard the doctrine that enslaved us in the first place. Um, there was certainly a justification made from the same Bible about about slavery. And unfortunately, it has taken on a mental pathology within the black community as it comes to, you know, colorism and how we deal with issues in our community. Because for the most part, even though there were a lot of religious leaders and the, the church itself played, uh, you know, played a role, unfortunately, the go to was to still just pray about it. You know, let's 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 come together in prayer about all the problems that we have. 
which is still ultimately self-defeating that, you know, God's going to take us through this and, you know, God's going to help us through, you know, God's going to, um, you know, we, we come this far by faith, but we were also being attacked by very God-fearing Christians. Uh, people forget that the Ku Klux Klan was a Christian or it is a Christian organization. So they are seen as they're seeing themselves as doing God's work as well. And so I think that part of it tends to be lost in the narrative of, okay, well, that's a different God altogether. Um, I, but I think that's how that was compartmentalized when it came to the black community and uh, how we've been forced to accept this institution and this God as how that's somewhat of a different God that they follow. So it's, it's, but ironically though, um, when you're an atheist in the black community, you're seen as trying to be like white people. You know, it's like you're rejecting the history. You're, you're rejecting the struggles of the community. If you reject God, which is just, um, which is very, very ironic. So, um, to be an atheist, to identify as an atheist in general is still very stigmatizing, but to identify as an atheist when you're black, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you're seen as betraying the race. You're seen as betraying the culture. You're betraying the history. You're betraying everything. It's like, you're, you're getting your black card revoked, which means that, um, you know, it's 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 even more ostracizing and even more isolating and polarizing when you openly identify. Yeah. And there's an issue we can maybe come back to, which is why atheists in this country tend to be disproportionately white and disproportionately male. Absolutely. Yes. Um, before we do, just staying with the black church, historically, you see people who even, you know, coming at it from our perspective, we have to admit are very dignified, serious human beings. But honestly, when you look at it today, um, I mean, maybe it's not my place to critique it from the outside, but if you look at white evangelism, you just see the most flagrant and just like almost comical hypocrisy. And, you know, you've got like what the pastors who are preaching homophobia one day and doing coke with a male prostitute the next mm-hmm. and one, one of the things i got from i watched a lot of your videos in preparation for the interview is that it's it's i guess i somehow would thought it would be different in the black church and i mean for instance thanks to you i now know that there is a thing called sanctified hose and um, I, I didn't really know I needed this in my life, but um, and when you watched some of that, it was like beyond belief, excess and hypocrisy and um, financial and sexual exploitation of people um, to the point where if you saw it in a drama, if you saw it in a TV show, you would you would think they were making it up. It's just like too too much. Too crazy. Absolutely. I remember growing up um, thinking I, I did a presentation one time about um, black comedians who, um, you know, who parodied the black church. And I grew up thinking that that was an exaggeration. But when I became more involved as an atheist and as an activist, I would see clips that were astounding to me that um that really they weren't exaggerating at all. In fact, I think they were, um, they weren't exaggerating enough. Well, they weren't, <laughs> it was, uh, and you know, 
really, unfortunately, because of the, the because of the historical aspect of the black community, you know, blacks have been historically portrayed as being savages and, and being evil and, and, and not being human. Unfortunately, a byproduct of that is that we tend to scapegoat certain leaders. Now, you got to remember that uh, during slavery, the pastor was the one who was revered in the church. The pastor is very highly revered to be in church leadership. You were very highly revered. So therefore, that in, in addition to not wanting our people to look bad, especially in front of those white people, there's a tendency to also sweep those actions under the rug or just ignore them. And uh, it's very, very, you know, if you've ever been to a black church service or ever seen one, it's very entertaining, a lot of, a lot of lively music, um, very emotional in nature. And unfortunately, the, the pastors and the leaders do personify that. And uh, it is it is extremely uh, dramatic, extremely comical. And unfortunately, it's also been extremely damaging because we want to hold our leaders in such high regard and, um, you know, not want to air our dirty laundry, especially not in front of those white people. <laughs> But in a way, you are we are airing our dirty laundry in front of those white people. So it's you know, it's a very, very hypocritical thing, uh, particularly, um, you know, and when I with that particular presentation, I, I tie in how, you know, slavery institution was not only at this point sexually exploitive, but it was basically uh, rape, a lot of rape and a lot of um you know, just a lot of non-consensual, um, you know, not a lot of lot of non-consensual and a lot of exploitive actions committed particularly against black women. And unfortunately, we tend to carry this out, particularly in the black church. Um, you know, yeah, the preachers are often ex- excused as being, you know, people of God and we shouldn't judge or condemn them. But meanwhile, they condemn their members for adultery or something that is considered, you know, sinful in the eyes of, you know, their God or what have you. And um, yes, it's not much different from the white evangelical um, side of things. In fact, it's, it's probably worse because of the historical angle and the historical aspect of the church. So many people are looking to protect it for a number of reasons that, but they're doing it the wrong way. I, though, I mean, I, I, I never want to say I understand how black people feel about racism, but I actually find um, the desire to, like, not make other people, other black people look bad in front of a white audience. I can really relate to that in the sense that I just had Aaron Ra on the podcast, and I was as hard on young white male atheists as I think I've ever been on anyone right especially mm-hmm. like the more alt right ones i said yeah. some i said some things which i mean i guess i would have to say it to their faces just to be consistent but they right. were as damning of both them and I, I said things like i thought a lot of the hatred of feminism was coming from a place of sexual frustration and resentment like really personal nasty mm-hmm. stuff which if somebody else said that who was a religious critic of atheism I would feel very, very, very differently about them saying it than mm-hmm. me or Aaron Ra saying it, who've been in the movement and who've been a part of this and endured 
to some level the stigma of the level of atheist for a long time now. I feel like it's one thing for us to say things that are venomously critical of atheists. It, it would be quite another to hear them from the outside. And in a similar sense, I can see a, a black person feeling the same way about blackness. It's like it's one thing to sort of call out our own internally, but we mm -hmm. don't want to give ammunition to people who are just ready to attack us. I, I don't know what the solution to that is, but I can see the point of view. Yes, absolutely. And the thing is that, you know, for, because... Uh, because the, because white folks have been in the majority, you know, um, there are, I mean, it's, it's about time. It's well past the time for, you know, for, for white folks to call out their own, you know, in addition to the black folks and other marginalized communities calling it out, you know, it isn't called white supremacy for no reason, <laughs> you know, so it's about time that it, it, it's, it's definitely uh, not just valid, but it's important. You know, for this to be recognized, <clears throat> I'm not sure if if people, certain people's minds are ever going to change about that. Hopefully now, more than ever, we're looking at what people are doing. We're calling them out as well and or as well as distancing ourselves from those who are, um, you know, who who either are against that progression. And um, it's one thing to, you know, continue to talk about it, which is good, but. Uh, moving beyond that, and um, and and I know as a community, particularly atheists, that we don't want to leave anyone behind, but sometimes we have to. That as as, as a human being, um, you are still, um, <clears throat> you know, you are berating others, you know, based on their their other stances, whether they're feminist or, you know, whether they're LGBT or whether they're a person of color. Then it's time to leave them behind. And, and unfortunately, mm -hmm. that's going to be a non-trivial percentage of our movement. Mm -hmm. But that, yeah. I, yeah, I'm beginning to think there's some people who just can't. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. And I'm not even against on this podcast having people I disagree with on. I'm going to try and make them see the light, as it were. But I don't, right. I don't, I don't think they will. Um, yeah. Before we get to the future... We've talked about some of the really quite unique challenges that face black people in America becoming atheists. Mm -hmm. What what can we do on the positive side? What does your organization do? What what what's to, to borrow a religious metaphor? Tell tell me the good news. Oh yes, absolutely. So um, in in a you know because for the past seven years um, once. Once we realized that there was a need for a space to help bring out more black atheists and help connect more of us, particularly within a largely religious black community and a predominantly white secular community, um, as as we have our work with black nonbelievers has detailed us, you know, host holding in-person meetings and events where, you know, we have general discussions um, we also have um, we also have social outings. We also participate in service projects. Um, our main our, our main focus has been community building because it's one thing to challenge the church and the doctrine and religion. It's but it's also we take it a step further as to you know as to connecting our fellow black atheists to say hey um, yes. You, you've let go of God, you've let go of religion, but what's next? You know, how do I go about finding others? 
You know, how do I go about rebuilding <clears throat> that that those connections, a sense of community with like minded individuals? And that is, in a nutshell, what black nonbelievers does. But we do it under, you know, we don't do it under a divine premise. You know, we're connecting people who have, um, you know, who have come to terms with their atheism or who have those doubts in favor of leaving. We let people know it's okay <clears throat> that there was nothing wrong with your position. And that it's okay to, you know, ask those questions. Or, and we also guide people on how to answer any questions that they may, uh, that they may uh, get from religious family members and friends. You know, there are some of our members who aren't out of the closet, so to speak. So they're still closet atheists, but we still provide that support for them. And uh, again, we do that in a number of ways. And we've also, ironically, today is a three-year anniversary of the CBS Sunday morning segment that we were featured in about being openly secular. And um, that was our first national um, television appearance. So we've also, um, any project that has allowed our members to speak on, on, on camera about their experiences, the more people see who we are, what we look like in our position, it helps to normalize atheism. Uh, it helps normalize atheism in the black community. It helps show that, hey, there are more of us. We probably have more in common that, with believers than, than people think. And there's nothing wrong with it. And so we're helping to overcome that stigma. Um, uh, and also we're redefining the historical narrative that all black folks are Christian or believers because we always weren't. And also the current narrative that there are more of us that are coming out and that are going beyond challenging religion, but they also are coming to terms with their atheism and that there is a foundation, that there is a place for them to land and, and grow beyond, um, you know, their feeling isolated, that there are that there is an organization that is there to support them. Because there's a lot of stereotypes about black people that are negative, and then there's some that are just sort of neither negative or positive. I mean, it's like there's a stereotype of British people being cultured, and it's like, I mean, my God, have you met British people ever? Um, <laughs> but there's, there's definitely a stereotype, and I have to say, to the extent that I've been in America and experienced it, it's particularly of black women. That, like, there's a stereotype of the older black women who says Jesus in every single sentence. And like all stereotypes, mm -hmm. it occasionally lands. Like, I feel like I have met this person. But it must be yeah. quite difficult to live under that stereotype if you're so actively... It's not even like you're not even mildly religious, you're a self-identified atheist. That's got to be just annoying to continually run into, right? Well, it unfortunately isn't much of a stereotype for us. You really do have a lot of older black women who will, my grandmother included, and I love her dearly, which is, you know, praise Jesus. My God woke me up this morning. We got to give thanks to the Lord and everything. So this isn't much, it, it isn't much of a stereotype that it is a reality. Now, how dramatic it may be can be a stereotype. But it is something that we run into. You can you can have a lot of white people who either were raised secular and never had to run into this religious thing um, over here in the United States. And I would say across the world, because there is a group there is a London black atheist, you know, in, in London. Um, there was a need to identify and have a group there as well. Um, but 
Um, you have uh, you can more readily find support for atheist, a white atheist who comes out and it not be that big of a deal um, to you know to be able to find those connections, even though a lot of them do risk their livelihoods and and their families as well. However, you go anywhere within the black community, whether it is in the South, like in Atlanta where we are, or it is a major um, metropolitan city like New York, where I'm from, um, you have very, very similar, if not the same dynamics within the black community. You still have a lot of heavily identified religious folks that they are, you know, that they are, you know, quote unquote, God fearing, even if it is just a, a surface or a superficial thing. We can't escape. <laughs> we, we can't escape it no matter what. So there's a lot of truth to the this, the, you know, the perceptions of the black community. However, um, I, I challenge those, you know, especially those those white atheists, especially those white male atheists to um, have a better understanding of why and not just assume that all of us think the same, just as we right. challenge the overall black community to do the same, that we are not a monolith, that we don't all believe in the same things, that we have different points, that we have different points of view. So what are some good starting points for white male atheism, which I'm somewhat acquainted with? What are, yeah. what are, what are some good starting points for us small basic steps we can take as allies. I mean, I think one that you've just alluded to would be have some sort of acquaintance with the history of race in America. Um, Absolutely. What, what else can we do? Well, in addition to having some, uh, in addition to having um, some knowledge and information about that, um, your point, you know, continue to refer people to groups like black nonbelievers, because uh, we, we didn't start this to look for validation from the, from the secular community. We started it because we knew that there was a need for it and that we knew that we had to do something about it. We could do it in, in, in our way um, that we're, we knew people could connect with us. And so also, it isn't just about securing the information, it's also about retaining it. The one thing I've come across is there are a bunch of people who may listen to our, our presentations, they may listen to what we talk to, but then, then they forget it, like almost the next day. And also that, you know, we don't consider ourselves always the authority on this. There are some things that you can speak to without always, um, you know, I guess doing that trope of, well, you know, doing the whole token thing, you know, if, if that makes sense, you know, um, there should be some effort to retain the information, but also in working with us, you know, you, you can refer people to us without that, without it being like a one-time conversation, you know, continuing to, you know, work with us on issues that we know are important and pertain to our communities. Um, and both that means the atheists and black communities or other marginalized communities. It can't just be a one-time conversation and we, we can't just be used as props as, as I've noticed that some, um, that some people try to do. Um, uh, and that doesn't mean that we expect you to understand everything or, or, you know, or just to take on everything, but you know, I, I think that there needs to be, and I said this in a presentation, you know, knowing the difference between a lead and supporting role 
understanding that that your privilege at times means that you may you, you you must you must realize when to when to act and when not to because I've noticed that sometimes sometimes there's an overstepping of certain bounds you when, must you must get a certain amount of like white saviorism right absolutely we do yes yes we do get that whole white savior thing where well we're you know, perhaps you should do this in order to get more of us to help you. And we're like, uh, yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> yeah, we uh, have, and then we have some who are so who are so ridden with guilt that they're they're trying to overdo it. And I we're just, like, can I just vent on this? Because this is a pet peeve of mine. Um, yeah. Being a good white ally. Tell me if you disagree. But being a good white ally like, 5% of that is feeling guilty about either contemporary or historical racism. Like, yeah. 95% of it should be doing things. And I see so mm-hmm. many white women, usually, I have to say, you know, sorry, Becky, but I have to say, um, just performatively, I feel so bad, this, that, the other, just let me get down on all fours and self-abase myself. And it seems like it's being humble, but it's in fact incredibly narcissistic. They're just placing themselves back at the centre of the conversation. Mm-hmm. That's what we call and white the... people tears. Yeah. That's what we call white people tears. It really isn't about... It winds it really me isn't up about as a white person. To... It must infuriate you. Yes, we, we start to see through that because after... You know, once that guilt is over, then they revert, then most of them revert back to the same, well, I didn't do anything wrong. So it isn't genuine. Right. You know, when we see the white folks who do that, it isn't genuine. It, it seems to be an effort to project um, their own feelings as um, not necessarily caring about the issues, but it's a reaction to, to what we say. And they're so thrown by that reaction that they just, it's a, def- it's a defense mechanism. Yeah. I mean, there's something to the conservative critique when they say we're virtue signaling, i.e. we're just trying to show how virtuous we are but not really doing anything. That, unfortunately, is true a certain amount of the time. Yeah. I mean, my own perspective on, on race and again, you can tell me if you think I'm getting this wrong, is I actually don't really do the white guilt thing. I think you can admit that you are a beneficiary of historical structures of oppression and admit that you have been unfairly advantaged by bigotry without putting your emotions at the heart of it. It's a fact about the world that you can acknowledge. In the same way as the fact that I'm quite tall, right? I'm six foot two. That actually, as a man being tall, has been shown to lead to better work outcomes. There's studies on this, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't choose that. That's just pure genetics, right? Pure luck. And I've been unfairly advantaged by it. In the same way, I've been unfairly advantaged by my gender and by my skin color and a few other things. Um, Right. You can acknowledge that without really, like, crying a whole load over it. And then you've just got a decision of how, you know, if you do acknowledge that, which I think is intellectually honest to do, how do you right. How do you proceed from there? And you can either say, well, I acknowledge it and I'm not going to do anything, and that's a point of view. Or you can mm-hmm. say, I'm going to acknowledge it and, you know, I'm going to ask the question, is there stuff I can do to, 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 to act in a way that will make the world a little bit less shitty for other people? And, you know, that's your choice, you know? I don't... Absolutely. 
you know, uh, uh, ironically, there was, uh, um, I go back to this, the presentation that I did on Martin Luther King Jr., who wasn't an atheist, but in his letter from a Birmingham jail um, in 1963, he was more frustrated with the white people who considered themselves allies than the white folks who he considered his enemy. Because guess what? They were honest. You know, they were like, look, we don't give a damn about you black people. You know, we don't, uh, you know, we, this is what, this is our heritage. This is what we're trying to do. But there were white liberals and white moderates who felt like he was being too radical in those days that perhaps he should tone down his activism. But yet they were considered themselves, they considered themselves allies. And so that was very frustrating to him, which in turn becomes very frustrating to us is that, look, you know, my, my thing is, you know, when it comes to white people and white allies, you know, I don't expect, you know, that all white people will care about what it is that we go through. Um, but if you do care, um, you don't you don't put yourself at the center and, and the focus of it. Like you said, you know, there is a there is a way to just like in just like I we acknowledge, you know, the collective history. We acknowledge the collective uh, institutional you know, uh, racism and injustices that were committed. Um, that certainly isn't pointing to, you know, the fact that I think all white people should be held responsible forever and eternity. No, you know, we can acknowledge the privilege, you know, we can acknowledge the history and also acknowledge the present and then work on the future and hopefully do it together. So let's... Um, Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the future because we've covered, you know, your organization. We've talked a little bit about race. One thing I'm really interested in and concerned by is I remember my sort of political awakening as an atheist, maybe about 10 years ago when you had that spate of books by like um, Dawkins and Harris and Hitchens, and it sort of really became a, a thing, right? And there mm-hmm. felt like there was a real energy and dynamism to it. And maybe this is a bit of a simplification, but I feel like it's really fragmented and lost energy since then. And I also feel like maybe I just didn't see it initially and I'm seeing it now, but there's a lot of very, very conservative elements in it, and not just conservative in, like, free market or whatever. There's always been a fairly libertarian streak within atheism, but socially conservative. A lot of the discussion in online atheist groups right now is taken up with a visceral, white-hot hatred of feminism, with a hatred of social justice warriors, and with a lot of discussion about race, which they would ironically get very triggered by me using this word, but is just Mm -hmm. very racist. And um, there's no other way around that. And Mm -hmm. it seems like there's sort of... It's not so much that there's, like, racists and anti-racists anymore. There's people reacting to historical structures of oppression, call them social justice warriors. And then there's this Uh other tribe that's formed that's reacting to 
the excesses of social justice warriors. And it seems mm-hmm. like atheism is, con- is more and more falling within that latter tribe where we're a reaction against the reaction. And I find that really troubling. So I'll, I'll, I've talked a little bit. I'd love your thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. It kind of reminds me of um, you know the South Park episode. I'm not sure if you're a South Park fan. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> where the Goo Bats episode, you know, they took our jobs. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, and similar to when uh, Barack Obama became president, you know, all these white people felt like, oh my God, our country's going to shit. You know, they're going to take over everything. You know, we're losing our rights and, and such. And it's just like, wait a minute. <laughs> no one is no one is taking your rights away. If you feel like your right is to demean women, demean people of color and uh, and to overlook the injustices that were committed over the years. And yes, those rights should be taken away because guess what? We are living in a new day and there are, you know, there are people who are speaking up. There are people who are coming out. It it seems like, you know, people who it's it's almost like the rich who feel like, well, you know, if you increase, you know, taxes for the rich, then everybody's going to have this this whole distribution of wealth that they're going to lose all their money. You know, if you give people better, you know, wages or, or, you know, you, you give people a better opportunity you know, to, to advance themselves. That's what they sound like, which is utterly ridiculous. Um, because now it's about, you know, not just, it's not just about leveling the playing field, but it is also about people taking a stand and doing what is, what is right. And, uh, I just find that that reaction just so it's, it's comical, but it's also sad that, you know, people would would use that to uh, to be rate what you know, and to be rate what you know what is what rightfully needs to happen. But I mean, do you do you think that that sort of reaction to the reaction has got more prominent and more salient within the atheist community? Because I think. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, I, I think it has. Um, I think it is a reaction to, you know, there are some people who think that we should just be this one homogenous focus on church and state separation issues um, and um, and just destigmatizing atheism. But atheism in itself does have an elitist element to it, particularly because you there is a there is a push to elevate a lot of educated folks or those who are degreed and who have books. And, uh, and so it is this literary community where, where, where people think we should all be on the same page, but I don't think they realize how it looks to a person of color who may be the only person of color in the room at an average meeting. And you're still just trying to push the, your white heroes on them not thinking about the, you know, the, the, not just the historical aspect, but the current climate, uh, especially as it pertains to racial justice, as it pertains to um, other aspects of, of the community. And there, there is just this blind eye turned to those issues and those concerns that makes it very off-putting for, for, you know, for others. And they, they just think that, oh, well, we should just stick with this. It's like, no, you know, as we progress and expand as a community, 
you have other people coming into it where you have to consider the backgrounds that they're coming from. You know, for example. mm -hmm. So I can already hear an alt-right atheist saying something to the lines of, well, race shouldn't matter, race doesn't matter, and the fact that you're even bringing this in makes you the racist. Oh, And I can just hear that, and here's my (laughs) response to it, and then let's get yours. Um, But here's my response, is it's different. If I walk into um, a room where I'm the only white guy, I actually did this recently, I was at a wedding of some friends, and I'm pretty sure... There was, like, non-black people of colour there. I'm pretty sure I was the only white guy in the room. There is no reason at all for me to feel threatened. None. If mm-hmm. you're walking into the room where you're the only person of colour, you've got to keep in mind the context where, if you believe opinion polling, somewhere between 15 and 20% of Americans hold overtly racist views. I.e., I would mm-hmm. not want my daughter marrying a black man. I would not want to live in the same neighbourhood. Yep. Mm-hmm. which that percentage of white people is about as many people numerically in the country as there are black people, which is a terrifying reality. Mm-hmm. And so right. if you're a black person walking into a room of 20 white people, statistically the odds are a few people in that room are going to have immediately judged you and dislike you because of your skin colour. That is a reality... Absolutely that white people don't have. And so when we're Mm -hmm. talking about, like, the feeling of being the only black person in a room, I can just hear these these alt-right fuckboys going, oh, but you're bringing race in, you're playing the race card, you know, you're the actual (laughs) racist. And my response would be, but it is just different. And there's, there's like, a lot of statistics we can leverage to show that difference. But it Mm -hmm. it is reasonable and rational for a black person to be on edge about going into an all-white space in a way that it isn't in reverse. Did that Mm -hmm. make sense? Right. It does. It absolutely does. And uh, it's it's very unfortunate. I I remember the first uh, podcast I was interviewed for back in 2011. And overwhelmingly there were so many white people that said, well, why does there have to be a black non-believers? You're racist. And blah, blah. I'm so we, we, and we still hear this to this day. I said, what if there was a white non-believers group? And, uh, you know, we, we hear that all the time and we're like, well, there doesn't have to be one because it's, you're it's automatically, the movement. right. You're automatically, you are the default. And so there doesn't have to be one. Do I wish there didn't have to, do I wish there didn't have to be a black non-believers? Do I wish there didn't have to be an ex-Muslim of North America? Uh, absolutely. But the same way also that there is a secular student alliance. There, you know, there's an American Humanist Association. You know, there are other organizations within this movement that have different focuses. Some are more ideology focused. Some are, you know, more of the identifier because it, there has to be an identifier, you know, for black non-believers. Because, again, we are still in a minority within a minority. So, therefore, there had to be better representation for us. So, yeah, we, we get that a lot. Um, I stopped. I've become desensitized to, you know, reacting to that. You know, once I see that I'm like up, I start looking at how many black folks this like if it's on Facebook, for example, I will check to see if a white person says that I will check to see how many black folks they have 
on their Facebook friends list. Usually there's either none to about one or two. And uh, on Twitter, there's usually only like, a few, definitely like a few, they only have like a few followers. Most of them are, are, are white. So it's like, you know, they're, they're in a place where they, they'll never, they don't want to understand and perhaps they never will. So they, they haven't admitted that they've never had to think about this. They're just reacting to it. And so uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a very interesting thing to navigate that, um, you know, we, we still have to deal with this from people who don't really want to understand because their, their own sense of privilege them. So where do we want to go as a movement? Because there's two realities. One is that I feel like a lot of the problems within the atheist movement that we're talking about have got worse. But the other is that atheism is growing. Like, maybe not the percentage who yeah. adopt the label, but the percentage who don't believe in God or don't believe in church is growing. And mm -hmm. we need to find, and we haven't, some sort of institutional expression of that growth. If we could get any sort of semblance of organization down, I mm -hmm. mean, we're something like 20% of America now. That's huge. Mm -hmm. It's more than yeah. black people, more than gay people. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. What do we, what do we, what sort of institutional arrangements do we need to build and how do we move past this? Well, uh, there's a couple of things here. You know, it's imparting that critical thinking process that we hold so near and dear. Part of the problem isn't the, you know, the alt-right atheists or the MRAs who are being open, you know, about it. It's the ones who are keeping this stuff to themselves or they may say, they disagree with them publicly, but then privately, they're doing something different. It's similar to what we've seen the Christians do or the believers do, where they preach morality in one sense, but then, like you said, they're snorting coke or, you know, screwing a whole bunch of people behind closed doors. And so we're seeing a lot of that in this movement where, you know, either those who, um, you know, who may say one thing publicly and then do something privately are... You know, they, they are very rampant in this movement. Also, there is this, um, you know, there is such a, um, res you know, there's such a backlash to the church as an institution that many atheists don't, when they see us organizing, when they see us putting, you know, organizations together and events together, they're like, oh, well, it seems like church. But so they're triggered by that. You know, sometimes it's an emotional trigger. Um, it needs to be understood that any, any movement and anything that is, you know, striving for the betterment of people needs the support. Um, there are a lot of good organizations out there, and I'll just say, in addition to Black nonbelievers, you have, um, you do have the organizations that are fighting for church and state separation. They are, you know, they are looking for these violations. They are, there are a lot of um, organizations that are building community around atheism or, you know, humanism or however you choose to identify it's important to support that. It's important to, uh, I've had a lot of people who attended their first convention or they attended their first, they attended their first meeting. They didn't realize how important that community was until they actually did it because we are, we're a community of outsiders. You know, we're a community of people who felt, you know, who felt different. We felt like the black sheep and somehow we found comfort in that. You know, we felt, we found comfort and solace in that weirdness. The problem is, though, it does not excuse 
You know, it does not that does not give us an excuse to be, you know, off putting to others. You know, there is a way for us to manage that and, um, you know, and, and, and overcome, you know, overcome those stigmas and, and work together. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're, you know, less than, but there's a, you know, we have to watch for all of that. You know, there's a lot of things that I, I think, you know, and just as I mentioned that the black community tends to protect people at times that we shouldn't protect. Um, it's the same with the atheist movement, that if you see someone who's problematic, if you see that, whether they are doing it publicly or privately, there needs to be a management process. And um, it's no different from the way other communities run their, you know, or, or other companies run their businesses. We've seen the church sweep things under the rug. We cannot become just like them. Um, I think if we put more of a, uh, a more of a business mindset to it, a more of a management mindset to it, um, we can continue to, um, you know, weed out the ones who we know aren't going to make it and then continue to encourage and develop those who will. So your your vision is, to put it starkly, sort of anti-unitary, like you think that t- just because someone is an atheist doesn't automatically get you on the team. Like Absolutely. We- right, right. And that's in that therein lies a difference in how we handle things. You know, just because someone just because someone is black, you know, doesn't mean that they're automatically on the team either. Mm. You know, we qualify everyone. And that goes in there's a lot of um, talk about black unity and such, which I am all for. However, considering the dynamic of the black community and how different we all are, I don't think overall unity without responsibility shouldn't be a goal. <laughs> Sorry? But then my final question is, what percentage of the contemporary atheist movement do we think we're describing here? 20%? 30? 40? 60? I would say, um, I'm hoping, well, I know from, because I engage a lot of people in person, I engage a lot of people um, offline, and uh, I've met many wonderful atheists from all backgrounds. So I think the online arena tends to misrepresent a lot of the atheists out there. Um, I tried, I I look at the online arena, I see it, I, you know, I kind of shake my head, I keep myself, you know, uh, you know, abreast of what's going on, but then I keep my focus on the people on the ground, you know, the people who, who need us and the the people who I've connected with in person. And some of them are shitty too, but (laughs) a lot of them are, yeah, a lot of them are, are horrible. But, um, I would say in person, it may be about maybe, it may be about 20 to 30% or so. I don't think it represents the majority yeah. Of, of atheists and, and people out there. So one statistic to back that up is when I was really concerned by what I saw as a rightward drift within the movement, um, I looked up the percentage, not of atheists per se, but of the non-affiliated in the last presidential election, and it was about mm-hmm. 70-30 to Hillary, which is about what Obama got of them. Um, so the path forward is we've got to take that 70%, whatever it is, who are not very active and politicised and certainly are not online right now. And I guess online doesn't really matter that much. But mm. we've got to build a new infrastructure and a new leadership to bring them forward. And then for the 20 30% who just 
cannot stand feminists and think Trump is, like, you know, great because he's really making liberals angry, mm-hmm. we'll make our arguments to them, we'll try and persuade, but we sort of know at some level we're not going to. And so your perspective is the future is we sacrifice the few to save the many. We've just got to stop yeah. trying with those people and work on the the. the the yep. we still have. I say fuck the ones who don't understand and focus on the ones who do. <laughs> you know, I mean that's that's always been, you know, that that has been my um that has been my method of of doing things is that you know there are more people who benefit from black non-believers existing than those who don't. And um and sometimes it may it may take only it may only be a few of us, but sometimes that's all it takes. You know, for for us to, you know, to get things going and uh, continuing to connect with those who are out there doing the work. Unfortunately, I've seen some things change. Um, I've, I've, I've come across some discoveries of some people who really aren't as who aren't as about the movement as they are about themselves. But that's a part of growing pains within any movement. And, and when you're dealing with people, when you're in a movement that's dealing with people, you're dealing with all sorts of uh, aspects there. <laughs> you know, many who are good, many who are bad, but and, and but sometimes it's also about about having that support and not definitely not giving up on it either. Because um, there's a lot of good that I'm seeing in this movement. I see that the the the, the, the student aspect is really helping grow um, some some good leaders uh, there at, and and um, at Black Nonbelievers. You know, we've helped bring about. You know, some some uh, some good folks who are doing some good work, producing some good content. So as much as, you know, it's 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 I try to take the high road as much as possible. But there there is a need to go in and critique those online and offline. But um, we, we should be careful about not making that so prevalent that we're losing sight of the good that we're doing. OK. Let's pause it there. Um, before we go, if people want to support your organization, what's the best way for them to do that? The best way is to go to our website at blacknonbelievers.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so donations to us are tax deductible. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at B Nonbelievers. The B and N are capitalized. Mm-hmm. And um, we're also we're we're just sort of everywhere on the internet. And I recently um, quit my full time job to become a full time activist. So um, I do have uh, I am on Patreon where I I uh, produce uh, content online um, that is about community building and, and atheism discussions from my point of view because I can be very unorthodox mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So, um, and also I'm making myself more available to people who want to hear me speak and who want to know more about black non-believers and the challenges we face. Um, I am much more available now for that, uh, because that has taken up a lot of, um, it is where I have determined that my work will be done best is within the movement now. So, um, yes, if people definitely want to support black non-believers, they can go to our website at blacknonbelievers.org. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much once again for having me. It was a great discussion. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. 
If you're enjoying the podcast and finding it valuable, we suggest a donation of $2 an episode. You can set that up really easily through Patreon, and a number of you already have since we launched that feature a couple of weeks ago. If you're not able to do a donation, then, as I mentioned at the beginning, sharing these episodes on your own social media is also a great way to support the show. So, either or, or both if you're able to, and thank you for everyone who's done either of those things. Thanks for listening to the show. Until next week. Thank you.